0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast,
1: a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today.
0: I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Teluca. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner.
1: The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP, Associated Body Work and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you. A package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, and quick reference apps, legislative advocacy, and much more.
0: ABMP's CE courses, podcasts, and massage and bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including both Till and myself. Thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. And Till, how are you today?
1: I am well, Whitney. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing very well. And uh, I believe you have an interesting training coming up, right? That we want to call some attention to and mention.
1: Yeah. Kind of third sponsor spot for today. It's going to be me because uh, today, the way day this airs, is the free intro to our rib principles training. Oh, yes. Yeah. And people can jump in later. A lot of people don't hear this the day they air, but all the way up until February 9th, you can jump into this live online training. It's uh, includes all of the technique demonstrations from our two day in-person workshop, but I'm gonna go through it in detail in live Zoom calls. And then people can either just watch those recordings or join us for the uh, event. And then there's a bunch of discounts people can get. It can be as low as 29 bucks for that. The intro, like I said, is on January 26th or you can catch that by recording later. And you can start anytime up until February 9th or by recording anytime. That's my sponsor spot. How'd I do?
0: All right. I thought that was excellent. I was going to rib you about that, but I think you did a great job with <laughs> it. Yeah.
1: Right. Uh, and we have a guest today.
0: We do Who have a guest. are talking to? In the hot seat, we have a guest today. We're going to jump across the pond and have Aubrey Going from Ireland joining us today. So good day to you there, Mr. Going from Ireland. Or actually, good, day, good evening. Good day, Whitney. Yes. Good day,
2: Till. How are you guys doing?
0: Yes, we're doing very well. Over nice um, to be here with you i really
2: happy to be here thanks for inviting me mm-hmm. really looking forward to it
0: all right so aubrey for those people that um, are new and across the world here who may have not been introduced to you before can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, we understand that you're president of the Irish massage therapist association and a senior instructor at the holistic college in dublin right so tell us a little bit about yourself what you do
2: sure uh well i guess i started i always say you know I started with my folks actually taking up yoga when my mom was expecting me in the early seventies, you know, there was no prenatal classes or anything like that. And she decided she wanted to do something and she dragged my dad along and the two of them loved it so much. They went on, my dad trained to be a yoga teacher. My mom trained as a massage therapist. And from the time I was a small kid, like literally four years old, my dad, that's your,
1: that's your, you're saying that's your pedigree. That's when you started your body bodywork. That's when I
2: started before I was born till (laughs) (laughs) I started in utro. Like my that. mom was doing meditation and breathing, and I was just picking up on those good vibes. <laughs> That's great. So then, yeah, we we uh, started learning yoga as kids. And my dad started the first holistic center in Dublin in 86. And we started all just every, like, this, we're a big family. There's seven kids in the family. And all of us have gone through massage therapist training at some point. Oh, no, that is and incredible. Sister, I yeah, got to hear all, about all, this story. The entire this family, to... <laughs> yeah. But myself and my sister really kept up that passion. Mm -hmm. Alison works with me and we founded the Holistic College Dublin because we got particularly interested in the training part of it. Mm -hmm. And Alison did her original training back in 1988. I trained the year after in 89. And we've just continued to train ever since. Like, I'd always say I'm really passionate about education. And I mean, being both sides of that equation, being both the educator and being the student that even now, 30, what, two, three years in and I'm still studying. I'm mm-hmm. really, really passionate about therapies and about education.
0: Tell me a little bit about this. is a fascinating visual picture for me about all these kids <laughs> studying massage and everything. But tell me a little bit about your trajectory with this. I mean, did you kind of know at the outset, like from, you know, secondary school on and, you know, through high school and everything that you were going to do this uh, or was it did you drift around a little bit before you landed back in on it?
2: Pretty much straight out of school, I started working in the family business. And the logical thing was, well, why don't you do a massage course while you're getting started and finding your place, your feet in the business? And I really, really enjoyed the massage, but I didn't necessarily see myself as being a massage therapist. I had an interest in photography and art and stuff like that. And I kind of was intending on going to art college. And then my dad said, well, we kind of need an instructor for this course. <laughs> so oftentimes it was kind of by need in the early stages that I kind of got sidestepped into teaching courses. But then I found the interaction, the the kind of the aha moment that you see students get when you show them a technique. Mm-hmm. I just found that gave me such a buzz. I really enjoyed that. And so it, it really changed the trajectory that I was on. Um, That I I liked massage, but I didn't necessarily see it as a career, not in those early stages. Yeah. So, a bit of an interesting shift.
1: It's really, I'm really interested in what the scene was in Dublin in the 80s where your family and dad started a holistic center.
2: Oh, it was crazy. Like, um, you still hear a little bit of it now, occasionally, from kind of fringe religious people. That back in the 80s, the church literally would say that. The practice of yoga was a cult. Like it was really Mm -hmm. like you were seen as being completely bizarre. And even when I first started training as a massage therapist, all my friends who were my age at the time thought I was absolutely nuts. They were like, you're, you're training to be a massage therapist. Like you got to rub people, (laughs) you know, they thought this was the weirdest thing ever, but they were used to it because I was the weirdo who was practicing yoga. Yeah. And what was surprising is there was a culture shift kind of in the nineties that suddenly everybody it's. Odd the things that change perception. Madonna saying she practiced yoga meant yeah. all of a sudden everybody wanted to do yoga. It was cool. It was mainstream. Yeah. 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 And you wouldn't believe, like, we would fill our yoga classes. We were running kind of five, six yoga classes a week where we would have struggled to fill two back in the 80s. You know, demand just completely changed. Attitudes changed. People started to see it much more as a lifestyle choice than being something that was almost counterculture or against kind of the the religious doctrine that was very dominant during the 80s in Ireland so yeah yeah, it was it was a weird time we we were those odd people swimming against the the current of popular belief and you always felt that I think I still carry that with me I feel like that bit of an outsider and I think it's good because it makes you stand on your own two feet and examine your own beliefs for yourself because you're constantly being required to justify and explain your choices to a certain extent
1: well that's why i enjoy your company i think i recognize that my family in suburbia had my dad had a geodesic dome in our backyard cool. and a ponytail and we raised goats and pigs this is like in suburbia and our neighbors were just totally like thought we were from the moon thought we were from <laughs> mars where did we Same. come from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah we were cousins across the across the atlantic
2: there that's so funny, because that, that was really our experience. And I thought it was interesting. You know, It's come up a few times in conversation about the idea of imposter syndrome. And I was yeah. saying, I, I don't get that. I, I don't think I've ever really suffered from it, because from a very young age, you had to self-reflect. You had to think about, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because you're meeting so much resistance that you had to evaluate as you go along. And it, it gave you a lot of confidence in what you were doing, because you've, you've actually drilled down. You're not just doing something because, you know, your parents did it and you're following in their footsteps. You're the one being challenged by your contemporaries and you have to think it through for yourself. And that follows me now. I even find to this day I'll be doing something completely mundane and something will pop into my head about teaching. And I'll go, oh, that's a better way to phrase that or to explain it, that you're always processing these ideas, working your way through concepts, coming to your own understanding and a vocabulary that you're comfortable with, a way of explaining. And I think that's one of my big passions actually is making anatomy interesting. Because I find it fascinating. And because you've thought through it, a lot of people are terrified about anatomy. They think it's complex and it's, you know, difficult. And I go, no, it's fascinating. And you start talking to people, even at the introductory level, people thinking about doing training with you at foundation level, and you can see they're getting excited about it. And that to me is the that working it through for yourself. And I think I've I've developed that mindset through those challenges, that adversity in childhood.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And tell me about your initial education experience in there. When you went to first do your massage training, did you encounter things in that training where like, well, that's not what my mom said, you know, because she's been (laughs) doing this for a long time, you know, did you, and you were raised in that environment. Did you have kind of a uh, pre sort of conceived notion or perception about a lot of those things before you went to do your, your formal training?
2: Not really. Cause I was, I was straight out of school. So I, I don't think I really questioned it questioned it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd certainly never talked about any of the theory or the anatomy, you know, mom would just say, Oh, do you want some treatment? Like particularly, I think it started when she was training to be a therapist and she had to do some, you know, soap notes, she had to do some case studies and, she worked on each of us as kids. And then every so often you go, Oh, my back is a bit sore. Could you do this? Or, you know, I was playing a match. Could you work on my legs or something? Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved my initial training as a massage therapist, the idea of getting up on the table and getting body work each week uh, was like a duct of water, you know, it was something I was so familiar with, but what's really interesting to me is when I look back at it now, the, standards the requirements in ireland were quite low when i was originally training we had to learn 12 muscles wow that's what (laughs) i mean about how simplified things were back then Mm -hmm. that like 12 muscles on the syllabus and you learn maybe i don't know you certainly didn't learn individual bones you learn some of the major bones like i I always remember learning about the femur uh for some reason i don't know that sticks in my head but like not individual vertebrae or even how many there were just these are the vertebrae (laughs) you know it was much more stripped down We didn't do every system of the body back then. I think there was maybe uh, the primary ones, like the ones I suppose that are most directly affected by therapy. So we did a little bit on the nervous system and the digestive, and then it was muscular and skeletal. And I think that might've been it, maybe skin. So yeah, we didn't go into any of the kind of depth that we do now in our modern training where the anatomy is so thorough. It's every system of the body and so much more depth, like, our current syllabus, I think there's 80 muscles on it at foundation level. Obviously, that expands as you go through into advanced training, but it's a big turnaround. You know, the, the, even the percentage of the training that's given over to anatomy, to theory in general, but to anatomy in particular compared to back then. But then back then, there was a lot more emphasis, I think, on stuff that maybe doesn't get as much of a look in now. Like we did a lot of meditation and breathing exercises that you're calming yourself so you're really able to connect with your client um be in the moment all that kind of stuff so i think it was much more an intuitive focus nearly rather than an academic focus hmm. so quite a shift.
1: experience how there's a parallel for sure going on here i'm just making me think about the first program i taught in was 125 hours right and there was one afternoon of anatomy <laughs> and that was uh it was actually the first class i ever taught It was a foot anatomy. I remember we didn't even have to do 12 muscles that you can get to pick one part of the body. That was it. Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) So what are the current um, requirements at foundation education levels there in Ireland right
2: now? So there are kind of a couple of different bodies that provide qualification that are recognized. And most of them are pretty consistent in what they require. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not a very heavily regulated field here. I think it's less regulated than in the US because you're not a licensed massage therapist. You simply will do a training course that leads to a recognized qualification. And then you can work as a therapist. I mean, we'll go on probably to talk about associations in a bit. But um, with the standard qualifications, they, it varies even in how it's delivered you know, our uh, awarding body here is iTech. They're based in the UK. They do a lot of training across Europe and in different parts of the world. I don't think they're that big in the US, but they're they're quite big here in Europe. And they set out kind of their requirements in terms of the the syllabus you have to cover, the number of hours. They then send in examiners. So that's nice because it's kind of independently evaluated. It's not just the school deciding you've Paid us and gone through your training. So, we're going to give you a certification. You know, there is that kind of independent evaluation for both theory and practicals, which I think is good. Um, so, at the moment, they would say we're kind of around the 450 hours for foundation. And then how you deliver that is kind of up to yourself to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Like for us, I think we're quite fortunate coming into the pandemic that we had invested quite a bit in an online learning platform, which I think a lot of schools hadn't at that time made the transition for us easier but we would have all of our theory available as online lectures so people can watch that anytime during their training you know it's 24 7 you can log in and you can watch these kind of bite-sized 10 15 minute long lectures uh students oftentimes say you know if you're waiting for a friend for a cup of coffee they'll stick in their headphones and they'll watch a lecture and it's a great way of reinforcing and i'd always say particularly with anatomy it's like learning a new language so it takes a while for you to pick up the vocabulary and being able to log in and listen to those lectures over and over again, it's like being immersed in the language. It's like going to the country. And then in class, when they come in, that's then further reinforced because we will do kind of a QA, and a we'll do an overview because they've already studied the, the, the material. We'll say, okay, what do you know about this? What can you tell me? Where's our gaps? Try and identify those, focus on those. What questions did you have? Um, so it makes it very targeted in class, but then also because of the nature of body work, when you do your practical, they're then placing those structures on the body, which I always say takes it out of the theory and makes it more of a concrete, a, an example that you can touch and feel. You go, oh, now I can feel gastrocnemius mm-hmm. and soleus. And that to me is the big kind of change point for people in their learning of anatomy. But it does mean for us that they've all that supplemental knowledge. So we get to do a lot of practical work when we have them in class in the college.
1: Mm-hmm. You're preloading with the online learning for quite a while and it yeah. just it occurs to me you're like one of the first uh people that i did a virtual workshop with you decided, yeah let's go ahead and try a workshop yeah and you basically you and i did a collaboration there from a distance i was sitting here in my office in colorado you were there yeah and we just ran the workshop and you know, with the help of your brother and the experience that you guys had
2: yeah it uh, it was that was really great i mean We hadn't really done much of that before. And I was surprised at how well it worked out because my thought process and what we were talking about at that time was where you have an instructor in the room, it's almost like having a TA. If people have been to these kind of big workshops, they'll see oftentimes the presenter is up on the stage, they're presenting, things are on a big screen, you can see everything really clearly. But then you have the assistants who are actually going around and doing the hands-on work with you. And I was going, you know what? If we do a virtual presentation, it's not quite the same as pure virtual where the person is sitting at home and they don't get the hands-on. That we felt that worked really well, that you could deliver the material. And then I was the TA in the room, (laughs) and folks loved it. It turned out great. It was a real success. Yeah.
1: It was something getting up at four in the morning and going to work. I had jet lag, (laughs) I'd say. (laughs) But it was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. I've done a few of those in Australia as well, where the time zones are completely different. You're up at like that 4 a.m. and you're delivering. You're oftentimes getting up at three to deliver at four. So gonna be a bit of a challenge i'm looking forward to whitney's gonna be doing that with us as well shortly so that's gonna be fun too yeah so
0: luckily it's only eight in the morning for me i think on uh, when we're doing that so that's good Ah, that's easy i got lucky yeah what
1: are you teaching Whitney? what are you gonna do
0: We're doing a thing on upper extremity nerve entrapments Mm. so a little uh short look excursion on the, this is something else that I think they've got. So you got some other things going on that day with them as
2: well. Is that correct, Aubrey? Yeah. We're going to be doing um, myoskeletal alignment techniques. So we're going to be doing kind of neck, shoulder, arm and hand. So it's a whole kind of chain uh, looking at those kind of nerve pathways, but also the soft tissues, typical Mm -hmm. kind of pathologies, doing some joint work. It's going to be really nice. And I just thought that I'd always think of, because from my first hearing about Whitney, a lot of it was around assessment and I was going, gosh, it'd be great to have uh, Whitney come in and talk about some of his assessment tools. He's thinking about maybe we'll probably do a little bit of practical work as well, kind of like you did till hopefully I'll be up to being your TA. Whitney. (laughs) Hopefully that'll work out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. It's going to be a really interesting workshop. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be fun. Yeah.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, now you're talking about some things that have changed significantly in the, the overall perception of, Massage therapy there in Ireland, Ireland. How about with the healthcare system? Is there greater inclusion of massage in the healthcare system now as well?
1: I'm sorry, Ireland has a publicly funded healthcare system, doesn't it?
2: Yes. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because there is, we have private health insurers as well. So Mm -hmm. people will oftentimes take out private health insurance, even though there is free public health Um, and they get various benefits for that. Usually you you get seen quicker and stuff like that. Things cost less um, for private care, but there has been much more acceptance amongst the public. And I think in the that early changeover that I talked about in the nineties, people used to they kind of saw massage as being part of um, well-being, so it increased the the acceptance for massage, but nearly more for like what you guys would call spa massage, what we'd call relaxation therapies or holistic uh, treatments. That there was a greater recognition of the benefits of that just for looking after yourself, like part of the maintenance, like doing yoga to keep down your stress levels. What I think is really interesting in is in about the last 10 years, there's been much more of a recognition of the importance of getting corrective body work. And I think a certain amount of this is probably down to social media, that the younger generation is much more fitness orientated. They're actually a lot more active, you know, even than my generation, which you know, they might've played sport when they were in school, but by the time you finish school, you kind of get into a job and you're not really that active. Whereas I see now in the younger generation coming up from 35 years old down, really, let's say younger generation showing my age, uh, that these guys are much more physically active. And as a result, I think they see the benefits of getting corrective body work to keep them pain-free and keep them moving well. So I've seen a, another quite a seismic shift in the last 10 years of people going for regular kind of maintenance work rather than just an occasional pampering relaxation treatment, which I think is a really good turnaround. I think in a lot of cases, people would nearly be better off before they start an exercise regime, get some preemptive therapy that they're able to move well and then go out and exercise. And, you know, because it amazes me, you get some people like 25, 30 years old, they say, I'm in a desk job and I feel like I'm getting a bit Uh, sedentary, I think I'll become a triathlete. (laughs) Like they're going to go from zero to triathlon. You're going, you definitely need some treatment to get you ready for that. So you don't get early injury that puts you off that you, you, you know, you stop, you don't actually get on and develop into a good triathlete.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How would you say the acceptance has progressed from other healthcare professionals about you know, massage, manual therapy, all the, the various different, you know, body work strategies, or is there greater yeah. acceptance from the other, your other colleagues and other professions for it as well?
2: To a certain extent, I suppose, coming back to the, the previous question about healthcare, going back to, I think it was 2003, myself and Alison were involved in what they call the National Working Group. And this was a group set up to look at statutory regulation of complementary therapies, because people were saying, this field isn't regulated. We need to do something about it. And it took them two years. They finally released the Garvey report in 2005. And they basically said, because therapy is really low risk, um, it didn't require statutory regulation. There wasn't enough fear of a poorly trained therapist creating significant harm for a client. So they decided from that point on, it was just going to be self-regulation. Now, that's been both a good and a bad thing because it basically put the onus onto the professional associations to set standards and regulate our, um, our profession. The difficulty is then it didn't quite allow for the same degree of integration into medical care and the medical system that would have happened if we'd gotten statutory regulation. But at the same time, it has left the industry, I think, more room to grow, that it isn't too restricted by Heavy regulation. So there's been positives and negatives. Um, on the association side, as you mentioned on in the intro, I was president of the Irish Massage Therapists Association, served my full three terms, and I happily stepped down in March of this year. So I'm no longer president. Really enjoyed my time, but a lot of work within an association, uh, particularly going through COVID, where you know therapists all over Ireland were going, What do we do? What are we supposed to do? How, how do we yeah. interpret government guidelines? How do we interpret health guidelines? So we did a huge amount of work at that time reading literature from all different jurisdictions you know what were the different associations in the u.s doing what was happening in australia what were different bodies in australia and europe recommending and setting out guidelines not just for COVID response but for our industry particularly because a lot of the advice that was coming out was nearly like hospital ward care and we had to say okay well how do we look at what's relevant in a massage environment and we found people like, you know, Ann Williams uh, put out a great book. You guys are probably well familiar with it. Uh, we promoted that a lot. We looked at a lot of the concepts in it and that amongst other documents and stuff, obviously from our own health service executive, from the CDC, from the WHO, and we set out guidelines. So a huge amount of work in that it was really, really interesting work, really rewarding. But my gosh, I'm glad we were in lockdown that I didn't have a ton of other stuff I was trying to do at that time. No kidding. Um, yeah. But the associations have really done quite a good job in helping to regulate the massage therapy practice here that, you know, you have to keep your professional indemnity insurance um, current. You have to have continuing education. You need to do some CPDs. Uh, I think you guys have referred to it as CEs, continuing education units. Um, So from that point of view, it's been really positive. But on the downside, I think because there isn't more government regulation, people don't necessarily have to be the me- a member of an association they can just work but obviously people most of the professionals are going to be association members and that does give quite a bit of assurance about standards and things like that in terms of acceptance from other healthcare professionals it varies definitely there's the kind of the old school people you know you hear anecdotal things of one of our graduates was saying that she was getting a huge amount of referrals from a local doctor because she was getting great results so he started sending more and more people And she said, oh, I better get in touch with this doctor and introduce myself and say thank you and all the rest and, you know, open dialogue. And when he realized she was not a physiotherapist, I think you guys call them a physical therapist when she realized he wasn't, she wasn't part of the medical establishment. She said she just, he instantly stopped referring clients. Oh, wow. And he said, now that's unusual.
0: Yeah. But it
2: was because she wasn't part of the medical organization. You know, mm-hmm. there's the whole thing around insurance and referral procedures for the doctor as well. Like it's not necessarily just a bias. They have their own um, criteria that they have to follow and things like that. But within the, the broader context, like certainly with other healthcare professionals, I think there's good co- collaboration between things like osteopaths, chiropractors, the massage therapy industry, that there's definitely a lot more of a uh, cross-communication now than there used to be much more of a dialogue much more cooperation
0: yeah
1: very interesting I'm just looking I'm just thinking of the uh recent kind of demographic survey that ABP put out about American therapists oh. and them being a sponsor of today's episode it's perfect uh, let me read you a couple of American statistics and you You can guess to see if that, how they might compare to Irish. Irish All right. 87% of respondents to this American survey were female.
2: Yeah, I would say it's, it's, it's pretty much a female dominant, dominated industry. What's interesting though, is we have seen our demographic shift a lot over the years and we see a lot more guys since we started offering what we would term here sports massage. I think yeah. you guys would kind of call it medical massage or nearly more like um, Whitney's orthopedic work. Um, that once we got more into corrective work, there's this weird gender bias. And I guess from those statistics that it, uh, it occurs in the States as well, uh, that a lot of people, both male and female clients would oftentimes have a preference going to a female therapist for a relaxation treatment. Yeah. But yet for corrective work, Both male and female clients will oftentimes rather go to a male therapist for what they perceive as being deep tissue work, because they think a guy is going to be stronger. Now, both of those biases, in my opinion, are unjustified. (laughs) You know, a guy can do a brilliant relaxation treatment. A woman can do an amazing corrective treatment. But these are preconceived ideas that people have in their heads. So Mm -hmm. in terms of the working therapists, I would probably say it's about 80-20 here. 80% 80% women, 20% guys.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- some of those those ideas you talked about are things we hear too. Yeah. And uh, I know Whitney, you and I are talking about really looking at gender questions in our field. So this is, you know, it's just really rich ground to learn more and really look at some of the assumptions we have behind the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. 69, sorry, 59%, almost 60%, independent business owners as opposed to being an employee or something like that. in the U.S. of these respondents. Similar in Ireland?
2: Yeah, I would say similar. What's interesting here is a lot of the employers will be either a spa on its own or more often a spa connected to a hotel or something like that. And what's really interesting is because they have a largely female clientele, they're inclined to hire people with a beautician's qualification. Because here in Europe, When people do beauty training, they include some massage. Now, my Mm -hmm. sister did it. She said an excellent beauty training course. There was, I think it was about 350 hours. And she said eight of those were massage. So what you generally see How many muscles did they learn? (laughs) I'm not sure how many muscles, (laughs) I never asked. (laughs) Or actually a lot, a lot in the beauty part. So they would have covered Uh, very thorough anatomy for their beauty training. So not to take from beauticians and the work that they do, but a lot of spas will hire beauticians- because they can do both beauty treatments and facials and things like that. And some massage. My issue with that is if they don't have a separate massage qualification, it oftentimes means again, nothing against the the profession and nothing against the individuals, but they haven't had very thorough training in massage. And I've found this when I go for treatment, the quality of the massage is oftentimes lacking simply because of a lack of training.
1: Hmm.
2: Whereas when you go to somebody working on their own, a self-employed therapist, They usually will have a massage qualification because it is a massage clinic. They may have a beauty qualification as well. They may offer both. But I think they, how can I put this delicately without offending anybody? Um, To make your own business work, the onus is on you to really offer high quality treatments. Whereas in a spa, the person is kind of going to the location. They're not necessarily booking in with a specific individual. Mm-hmm. So I think there's much more demand on somebody being self-employed to provide really top quality treatments. If they're not, they don't have anything else to fall back on. And I think they will have a difficulty succeeding. And seeing as how most of them succeed, I think they put the time into their education. All right. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Nice. There's a, I mean, is that your impression Do most massage therapists or body workers? We should expand a little bit. In Ireland, do they succeed? Do they do
2: well? I think so, because I certainly know from our own graduates and from talking to members of the association here that most of them are in their career kind of 15, 20, 25 years. So I think some people who do the training never quite get around to working at massage. Some people do the training and they might do a little bit part time and that might fizzle in or out. I'm not sure. But for a lot of people, I think they once you get to the point of I've done my training, and I've gone to the, the difficulty of actually setting up in business, I think those guys are pretty determined. And I think once you have that kind of determination, you have the passion for it, you will succeed. And I think they, they do really well. I like haven't talked to, as I said, a lot of our graduates. They're still in business for several decades. Their, their mm-hmm. clinic is going strong. If anything, I feel over time, because you build a better word of mouth, you have more regular clients, you actually get busier and busier. Most of the guys that I talk to that are at it, 10 years plus Yeah, they have a waiting list. They have a waiting list of kind of a month, six weeks. I know when I was regularly in clinic, I was hugely booked out for six months ahead. So mm-hmm. yes. I, th- I think your business does actually grow a lot as time goes by.
1: I'm a little bit, I, I don't have a good representative picture, but I know that people coming to our trainings who tend to have been ex- practicing for a while, experienced practitioners, really trying to go to a higher level. I hear a lot of that. I hear a lot of the people are just really busy, really full, don't have room. They're dealing with the, the opposite problem they had three, four years ago, where it's like, how do I get clients? Now, how do I manage so much demand? Is often yeah. a question here that I'm hearing. Again, I don't know if that's across the board. The ABP said uh, 93% of respondents in July said they're back to work after COVID here in the US, which yeah. is really interesting. And Let's that see. 40% work two or more jobs.
2: Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. do yeah.
0: You see that a lot that people are doing this part-time in conjunction with other work as well. Is that also pretty common?
2: Yeah. And I think again, particularly in the early stages of their career, because I know people that say, I love my job. I just don't want to do it, you know, Monday to Friday. I want a little bit of freedom. I want some creative expression in what I do. And they feel massage gives them that. Um, so I know quite a few people in the, probably the first maybe three, maybe as many as five years, they will work part-time in what was their existing employment before they started to train in massage. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of them, once they get past about five years, if they're still practicing and they're still really enjoying it, they're usually making the shift because they're getting that, I'm so busy now, I'm running out of available hours, maybe I'll just do this full time. was a recent uh, graduate of ours returning for further training uh i thought it was a really nice story he said his son has recently trained in therapies and he goes it's great now because i can kind of take a step back i can refer clients onto him he had the same problem he was booked out so far ahead of time they work a lot with athletes cyclists in particular and he said i can start to shift some of my client base across to my son so it's a great way of him getting that experience they trust him because there's a family connection for some reason. You know, it's an yeah. easier referral. Uh, he's working out of his clinic space. So he said, I'm, I don't feel as, you know, I have to work as many hours to try and cover costs and still make a living. So I thought that was a really nice kind of pairing that they kind of had that benefits both parties. It'd be nice to see people do that a little bit more. Any other demographics for us, Hill thought those are really interesting numbers. Those are good <laughs> but, ones. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, you know, we're spread across the spectrum. Again, this is of massage therapists and body workers in general, but they found, uh, people working any 24% work 20 hours a week or under 28% work around 30 hours, 29%, 40 hours. So pretty even spread across the number of hours per week spectrum.
2: That's an interesting kind of statistic as well. Cause I've oftentimes said, um, to guys who are at the point of doing exams, they're about to graduate And I'll oftentimes say, you know, in terms of, they'll say, you know, how much do I charge and how many hours can I do? And, you know, they're kind of working out, like, how is this going to shape up as a career? And I'd oftentimes say, you know, it's not like other careers. I think you need to, if you are aiming for longevity, you do kind of need to limit the number of hours that you're going to spend in the clinic. And I think really sustainable, 20 hours is nice. 25 is is doable. I think once you get above 25 as a long-term thing, You're kind of battling fatigue. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I suppose it depends on the style of treatment you're doing, and if there's a a reasonable mix. I think what's interesting here is you'll see people do complementary kind of things. Like you'll have somebody who is a yoga teacher and a massage therapist. So they're still self-employed. They're doing stuff they like, but they're not doing, you know, their full-time job being just one thing. Or they'll be a gym instructor and a massage therapist. You know, there's, there's a lot of those kind of complementary sort of things that tend to work out quite well. We get a lot of people coming from a fitness background to do our sports massage courses. And they'll go, you know, the clients who come to me for personal training will then come to me for treatment and vice versa. So one business model feeds into the other and they find that works really well for them.
1: As yeah. somebody who was really focused on my bodywork practice for many years, mm-hmm. uh, I was surprised to learn how many people had second jobs. I remember first being aware of that. In the survey I mentioned a couple episodes ago with Diane Metkowski, where I think it might have been similar, about 40% of people in that big survey had a second job. Wow. And my my assumption was, wow, they're not that serious about this, you know. <laughs> but then when I did, dug into the data and we started really looking at correlations, there was a much higher level of satisfaction with both the size and the quality of people's practice if they did two jobs.
2: Wow. I suppose, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I never really thought about it because people have asked, you know, if you weren't doing this, what would you do? And I'm like, I don't know. This is this is my life. This is what I live, sleep, and breathe and think about 24-7. You, <laughs> yeah. you don't do anything else. Um, you even, like,
1: listen to podcasts about it. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> Imagine that. But I suppose in some ways, I, I have had two jobs between being an educator and a therapist, yeah. you know, for probably... 20, 25 years of the, the time that I've been involved, you know, in a professional capacity. Um, I've done both and was a yoga teacher at times. So like my day used to consist of, I might see four clients, then get changed and teach a yoga class and then get changed and teach a uh, massage course. So I like my day might start at like 12 o'clock and i would see a few clients do a yoga class six till quarter past seven. We used to do an hour and 15 minutes. And then I'd be teaching massage course from seven till 10 p.m. <laughs> And do that three, four days a week.
1: What were you saying about like 20, 20 25 hours a week? Like too much is like.
2: I think 25 is, is, is sustainable. I think once right. you go over 25, just purely of hours in the clinic. Yeah, yeah. So that's not taking into account all the other hours you have to do of laundry and contacting clients and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. No good, yeah. no You're giving classes. yourself
0: space to to uh, have a burnout schedule of teaching at the end <laughs> yeah. of your work day. Too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think, yeah, 25 hours is kind of a nice amount. Mm -hmm. And the maths has got to work out. You know, we talk to people about, you know, if you're renting a room, what should that represent in terms of how many clients you need to see a day? Because I don't know what it's like in the States, but in Ireland, Dublin compared to rural Ireland is very different. So costs of living are much lower. Mm -hmm. Um, The cost of like renting a place is going to be much lower. But then what you can charge is much lower. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of swings and roundabouts. I I, I was listening to a thing. They were saying it's very similar in Australia at the moment. They said, you know, where they were trying to set standardized prices, you're going, but it's completely different. Cost of living somewhere more rural in Australia compared to living in one of the cities. You can't say, well, an hour's treatment should be this price because, you know, it's so varied. I I assume it's similar in the States. What do you guys find?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think there's a a fair amount of variation also between, um, you know, more populous uh, areas, big cities and things mm-hmm. like that, and, and uh, more rural areas, I think we see yeah. a similar type of thing. Yeah. definitely. Yeah, definitely.
2: It's an interesting change. And like some yeah. of our students, you know, because Ireland's pretty small, so they don't travel too far to study with us if they are rural. Mm-hmm. And I've heard therapists say, oh, yeah, like I can't charge more than, you know, the, the average, I suppose, here in Ireland at the moment is probably about 65 euro for an hour's treatment. And they're saying, we can't charge much more than 40. Mm-hmm. I was going, wow, 40 an hour? And these are like our third year students. So they were doing like, you know, pretty complex stuff. You know, mm-hmm. high level advanced training, uh, advanced therapy that they were offering. And they were saying, yeah, we can't charge more than 40. But then when they started to go into what their costs were, you're going, oh, okay, well, that's probably similar. Just, you know, you've, you've shifted the dials. The income is lower, but the costs yeah. are lower. You're probably coming out with about the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting.
0: I'm curious to know a little bit too, you know, you've done quite a fair amount of teaching where you are there in Ireland, but also around the world, you know, coming, uh, you know, traveling a good bit with uh, Eric and doing some of your own things elsewhere. I'm curious, do you have any interesting perceptions, observations, or experiences about massage in different locales that you've seen either, you know, comparison wise, or like, I can't believe they do this this way here. It's really different. You know, anything interesting that comes to mind for you?
2: Well, one of the things I've really noticed is the commonality. Mm -hmm. The therapist will say, well, you know, over here, You know, we have this terrible difficulty of, you know, there's a lot of people out there that aren't well trained (laughs) and they they don't want to do advanced training. You know, they just do their basic work and or, you know, the the standard in schools isn't as good now. And you hear the same kind of stuff. And I'm going, yeah, same back in Ireland, same back in Ireland. What was really interesting for me was one of the first times I went to the U.S. And you kind of think the way I described this, I said, you know, I thought there's all these leading lights These great luminaries in our industry, Mm -hmm. you know, congregated in the States. And when I went over, guys in the U.S. were saying, oh, you're so lucky to be in Europe. There's so many, you know, leading lights (laughs) within our industry. And I was going, you know what it is? Those people are scattered around the place. And when you're far enough away those lights look like they're really close together yeah, that's right. <laughs> because like the us is huge same yeah. as europe but you just think of it as this one landmass and you go so many people over there are amazing you know there's so many of the industry leaders that you hear of and they're going no europe is like that. i was going there's not really anybody in ireland there might be one or two people in the uk there's a few people dotted around germany and france and austria and stuff and you go there's not that many you know in your town or yeah. in your city, yeah. so I thought that was an inter- interesting perspective. Where they're going, you're so lucky. There's there's so many top-notch people in your area.
0: <laughs> it's kind of like that uh, saying about uh, an expert is an ordinary person from somewhere else. You know. And, yes. You know that whole thing True. too about you know it's it's difficult and to to sometimes be perceived as having that kind of value if you're really close and 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 convenient to people. It's got to be this. Uh, mystery and mystique that sounds the so that, that uh, surrounds the person that comes from somewhere else.
2: Interesting that you mentioned that mm-hmm. the kind of the the mystique of being far away and, and how things are convenient. Um, we were running a, a seminar pre-COVID. It was probably late 2019, and I had two phone calls on the same day. One person calling from Hawaii to say she was going to come over to Ireland. She really wanted to do our workshop, and she was you know making arrangements. Um, then we had somebody from. Wicklow which is just the county beside Dublin so it would have taken her maybe 50 minutes to an hour to get to us and when I was talking to her she goes yeah but you know you're so far away I don't know if I could make it (laughs) I've just talked to somebody who's coming from Hawaii (laughs) and you're coming from an hour away in Wicklow and you're not sure if it's a bit far you know it's amazing how perceptions change whereas for the lady in Hawaii she's going this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm going to travel across the world to take this workshop. And for the person who was close by, it didn't seem that special because it's in her backyard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, you hear about him all the time. Yeah. He's the local guy here. So yeah, it's the, know, just local guy. Is
1: no one in this hometown. They say the problem yeah. is no one or something. His <laughs> right. name is Whitney. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I had a similar situation like that one time. This is back in the early 2000s. I had a practitioner that was working out a clinic with about four practitioners working in there. And one of them had expressed interest in wanting to learn and study a little bit more of the stuff that I was focusing on. And I wasn't doing many courses locally here because they don't tend to do very well. You know, they do a lot better when I go somewhere else for that same reason. And so she said, okay, well, like, and I was doing this, I'm in Oregon and we, I was doing this course out in like upstate New York or something like that. So again, geographically, that's a long way. It's like 2,500 miles away. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I flew out there and she said, okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna go see what this is all about. And she decided to go to this course, um, way out there. And (laughs) she was talking to some of the other students, um, when they found out that she worked in the clinic, they were like, oh my God, you work in that clinic. You get, what's it like, what's it going to be there?" And she goes like, uh, it's just kind of normal. You know, she didn't kind of get that whole, scene that was around this whole flabbergasting thing about being able to do that. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty normal. You know, it's, it's pretty, but, uh, but different too. So yeah, that's, that's a funny, that's a funny. Yeah, if it's assumption. too
2: easy, I think our, you know, our ability to appreciate it is reduced. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I think there's, that is true. There's, there's some kind of specialness. I think sometimes that, that needs to get you hooked into it to realize, you know, some of the, the value of those different kinds of things that are, they're often close and local, but You know, and I've spoken about this, too, that, you know, geographically here in the States, you know, we're a big geographic uh, area, you know, when you look at the whole congregation. But uh, in terms of the massage and manual therapy world, there's some really strong pockets of things that led to what I often refer to as talent vortexes, where a lot of people were drawn into one particular area at a particular time for things to happen. So, for example, Till still lives there, you know, I think Boulder <laughs> is uh, a talent vortex for a lot of people in the manual therapy world, mainly because of the Rolf Institute and the people that congregated well, the, even the massage from the, school here that yeah. was
1: going on in the counterculture in the 60s. Yeah, for summer it was between the coasts. Yeah, lots of things going on that made that the case. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, one of those interestingly
0: too, florida um uh in the late 80s you know when you look at the people who were in florida paul st john aaron mattis benny vaughn judith delaney you know all of those people john upledger were all coming out of florida like what was in the water down there something was going on so that creates you know uh, again a lot of interesting talent pools that i think spin off of those kinds of things when you have that kind of interactions with with a lot of people that were going on so I'm
1: thinking there's a, in those places at those particular times, there was an interest in health. There was a certain sense of the outdoors or nature. There was also a sense, there's also a certain amount of financial prosperity mm-hmm. in all those places.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And I know that's something that's come to Ireland over the last few decades as well.
2: Yeah. 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 You wonder how much of that is a factor that people are just a little bit more affluent. They have money to spend on those things. Yeah yeah and california as well i remember hearing about california. boulder though like back in the late 80s mm-hmm. so it, it had even made its itself known all the way across the pond here in ireland yeah. um, but then also like the uh esalen institute and of course all the people that you mentioned i didn't realize they were all based in florida around that time yeah because i would have heard of or have studied with most of those people at some point or another
1: mm-hmm. yeah Esalen would be in california but yeah all those that long yeah. list you yeah. had was uh, those are Florid- floridians
2: yeah yeah it's amazing it's crazy yeah there was more than just the esalen wasn't there something else in california as well because i always think of california as a real mecca for therapies as well oh the bay area was in the 80s and 90s
1: yeah so there was a you know many many schools that took the work further but then the big cultural centers of both la and the bay area were pushing the edges in all kinds of ways that
0: and there was a fair amount of stuff that out. was, I think, also happening a little bit up in Northern California, you know, Harbin Hot Springs and Heartwood right. and some of those places that were doing, you know, really the, uh, but more far sort of um, cutting edge of, of early in the, in the sort of alternative health communities of of things with, with bodywear practices there. So um, yeah, it's, it's a big geographic place also. So lots of diversity of, of things that are happening there. Yeah. So well, what else do we have? Anything else um, about the uh, explorations with um, your experiences that you want to share with us?
2: Yeah, like I said, the the big thing I noticed was actually more the commonalities than the differences. Yeah. Both you know across Europe, uh, down into Australia, uh, the times I've spent in the US, that I think there's far more commonality. There's more that unites us than is different. You have different regulation in different places. You have different terminology slightly you have different kind of uh competing industries and things like that so there are some things but they've never out that much that's right different
1: Different accents
2: different accents yeah Yeah. of course yeah well i I have no accent though of course you do know that my my accent is completely neutral yeah (laughs) you you guys have an accent
1: finally have someone on the (laughs) the podcast who doesn't have an accent
0: yeah so you're (laughs) on the advantageous end of this because you can come to the states with this irish accent and sound you know really exotic and intelligent and you know, me having a Southern accent has always been a somewhat of a disadvantage in a lot of places. So, uh, you know,
2: interestingly in Australia, when I was over, they were saying that over there, if they want to like, say in advertising, if they wanted to be very authoritative, they will use somebody with an English accent. Mm -hmm. And if they wanted to be more light but interesting and like you said, sounding intelligent, they'll use somebody with an Irish accent, which ah. I thought, oh, you know, this is not exotic. Why would people Sorry. choose an Irish accent? An Irish, uh, an actor with an Irish um, accent. I thought that was really interesting, bizarre. Yeah. But he said the 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 English accent was used much more for kind of like serious announcements, you know, interesting government announcements and things. But like uh. if you wanted to sell something, you use an Irish accent.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. I'm gonna remember that. I might have to hire you for some sales pitches for our company then.
2: Voice over, work. That's right. There you go.
0: (laughs) Right. So Aubrey, how do people find out more about you and your work and what you're up to? Where can people connect with you?
2: Sure. Uh, Well, our college website is um, Mm hcd.ie, like the letters for Holistic College Dublin. .ie, all Irish kind of domains are .ie rather than .com. So hcd.ie. And one of the things that I've gotten quite interested in the last while, and I know we expected from having done virtual workshops and hybrid workshops. I love doing the hybrid stuff because you have people in the room and then you have people joining online. Is as we're coming kind of coming out of the tail end of COVID, I think a lot of people are kind of Zoom adverse. They're they're oh. not really into much uh, online training. But yet we've been doing these kind of short workshops where they're focused on a particular thing. They're maybe an hour and fifteen minutes long and those are still really popular people are really enjoying those so we have a few more of those coming up over this coming year people can find those on our website um nice. we're obviously doing a lot of in-person training now as things are starting to open back up um so they can find out more about that uh of course we have our own range of books and dvds i wrote my second book during lockdown uh, still working on the third one i um, Hope, hope to have that maybe by summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of different kind of mediums and stuff that people can find out a bit more. Uh, we obviously have our own Facebook, um, YouTube channel, all those kind of things. So I think Google. All those, yeah, we will
1: put all those links in lots the description. stuff
2: will come up. Yeah, yeah, great.
0: And for those that aren't aware, Aubrey, what are your books that you have um, published?
2: So my first book was um, Sports and Myoskeletal Therapy for the Lower Body. Mm -hmm. And upper body is the one I'm working on. And then the other one is another subject that I'm really passionate about is the use of kinesiology tape. Mm -hmm. So the book that I wrote is part of an online course. So there's a whole video for every taping. But what I was really interested in including in that was the assessments to go with the taping. Because Mm -hmm. I think I'd always talk about incorrective therapy. The ideal is to have kind of an unbroken chain that when the person comes in, you're able to do a good intake. So that you have an idea of what is this person presenting with? What are they looking to have dealt with? And where do they want to get to? Like, what do they see as their goal? Once you have that in mind, it kind of helps you to establish what kind of tests you need to do. If you're doing the appropriate tests, particularly like doing cluster testing and things like that, then you've got a good chance of kind of figuring out what's going on, or at least getting a first perspective on it. Because I'd always say, you know, nothing is definitive. And most people are pretty good at that point. So knowing what tests to do, being able to do them properly. The next step is one that people struggle with sometimes, I think, is interpreting the results. You know, they'll perform the test, but they maybe aren't quite sure, like, oh, well, that was sore. I'm I'm talking about, you know, people in the early stages of their, Mm -hmm. you know, practice. I think experienced therapists don't tend to struggle with this. But they oftentimes, they don't quite know how to interpret, say, a false positive, what that's going to mean. Or even a positive sometimes. How do you distinguish? What is the nature of that dysfunction? Really clearly understanding what each test is doing and what it's telling you. And then I think the last step is once you have interpreted the results, you should have something to do about it because each response really has a specific technique or tool or approach that will best help to address that situation. And I find when you get that unbroken chain, you get amazing results. A lot of people, when they go taping, they learn taping patterns, but not necessarily why you should tape, when you shouldn't tape, you know, a lot of that, the the kind of the deeper understanding rather than just a rote learning of you do this application for this condition. So that's why we included assessments, both assessment videos in the online course, but there's also assessments included in the book as well. So if you think the person needs a a particular taping application, do the tests and see. So again, it's kind of guiding people through what is hopefully an unbroken chain to successful results.
0: That sounds excellent. Well, thank you again so much for sharing your time with us today and uh, diving into some of these uh, fascinating topics. It's always great to help us all broaden our perspectives and look around us and see what else is happening uh, in other locations. So um, this has been a great uh, exploration of those things.
2: Well, Whitney, I'd like to say a big thank you to you and to Till for inviting me on. It's a great opportunity and I'm delighted to have a chance to chat to your audience and hopefully they found some of that interesting. (laughs)
1: All right. Nice to catch up with you. Know, it's, all, it's great to hear what's going on with you. Interesting guy that you are, but also in the amazing place that you live, mm. Ireland.
2: Thanks, guys.
1: So on the way out, our closing sponsor, Handspring Publishing. When I, Till, was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was fortunate enough to have ended up with two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people who love great books and who love our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share with you, the Advanced Myofascial Techniques series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books, written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness.
0: And Handspring's Move to Learn webinars are free 45-minute broadcasts featuring their authors, including one with you, Till. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And do be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. And thanks again so much, Handspring. And we would like to say a thank you to all of our sponsors and also to all of our listeners. Thank you all for hanging out with us here and hope you got some good uh, insights out of our chat today. You can stop by our sites for links, show notes, transcripts, and all kinds of other extras. Uh, you can find that from my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com until where can people find that from you?
1: Our site advanced-trainings.com. If there are questions, guests, or things you'd like to hear us talk about, email us at info@thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media at our names and my name remains Till Luca. How about and you?
0: My name today also does remain Whitney Lowe. Uh, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's uh, also very helpful because it does help people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or wherever else you happen to listen. Please do be share, uh, do be sure to share the word and tell a friend. And of course, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can always play a Frank Zappa guitar solo at triple speed on your eight track tape deck. And you can hear us there. Thanks again, Aubrey. Thank you, Till. Yeah. And uh, Thanks, guys. All right. We'll see you all again in two weeks.
1: I'm going to go look for my Frank Zappa and give that a try.
0: That's right. The harder thing is going to be finding your eight track tape deck. Uh-oh. Bye for now. Yeah. All right.